Right, if you're in Philippians, turn to chapter 4, and we will read these verses again that I hope are becoming not only familiar to your mind, but are seeping down deeper into your heart. Philippians 4, we'll begin in verse 10 and read through verse 13. Hear the word of the Lord. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Over the last three Sundays, we have been studying Christian contentment in Paul's letter to the Philippians. And one of the things that I have become grateful for over these last few weeks of of studying this letter is that something that I mentioned in my prayer just a moment ago, Um, this is not, I'm grateful this is not, this letter is not a lecture on contentment. That it is a model of contentment. Written as it is with a heart full of joy from the confines of Roman imprisonment. Paul writes with so much joy. And from the beginning, we established it wasn't hard. It's very easy to see that the source of Paul's contentment is Christ. It's Jesus, the one constant. Something that we have seen over the last two weeks is that if Paul was going to be all about Christ, find all his joy in Christ, then not only would he take joy, find joy in the person of Jesus, but also in the purposes and the passions of Jesus. And this totally makes sense. It's so obvious. I mean, there's no way that Paul could claim to be full of joy in the Lord and not share the aims and the purposes and passions of Christ's heart. That would be impossible. But I think that such is the nature of our hearts and the deception of sin that Maybe I have to press on this just a little bit more. So let me kind of draw up this comparative scenario. Imagine that you were candidating, or not candidating, campaigning for one of the presidential candidates for 2016. Okay? (laughs) Some of you shaking your head. Not going to happen. Okay, so you, you, you hit the street and you start knocking on doors and everyone that you talk to wants to know what the presidential candidate that you're campaigning for stands for. They say, what's his agenda? What are his values? What's important? What changes does he want to make? And, or she, and, and so on. And you say to them in this imaginary scenario, you know, 100%, I support the person. But when it comes to their agenda, we are on a totally different page. I'm 100% for the person, but I don't share his values at all. That person would likely look at you and say something to the effect of, okay, I don't know you, 
but there's something wrong with you, uh, with your brain. Because that wouldn't make any sense whatsoever, and it's the same thing true in our relationship with Christ. We can't be all in with Christ and joyful in Christ and yet not share His values, passions, purposes, the aims of His heart. It just does not fit together. So there are two purposes of Christ that we find dominating this letter. This this letter that's all about joy in Jesus has so much joy in these two things. One is, Paul has so much joy in Christ's people, and the other, so much joy in Christ's proclamation slash praise. So those two themes dominate this letter. And so that's a basic recap. We started with Paul's joy is in Jesus. That's so plain. And then the last couple of weeks talking about Paul's passion for Christ's church, his joy in the people of God, and then last week, joy in proclaiming Jesus and bringing praise to his name. Today, I want us to focus a little bit more on what contentment, Christian contentment, is not. And then we're going to look further at contentment as Paul phrases it in chapter 4, in any and every circumstance. So first of all, when we are talking about Christian, Christian contentment, we need to be clear up front what it isn't. It would be a mistake to think that if you have one of those unflappable personalities, you don't need to learn Christian contentment. If you're the kind of person that really doesn't get phased by anything, you never really get too high, never really get too low, circumstances don't control your emotions and your emotions don't vary a whole lot, you're pretty even-keeled, then you don't need to learn Christian contentment. That would be a mistake. A good personality is not Christian contentment. Um, There are some people, by the way, I can be driven nuts by people like that. Um, You know, if you're really grieved or upset about something or really passionate for something, and (laughs) it's the first thing that came to my mind, um, you know, maybe a false teacher, nothing makes my blood boil like a false teacher. So you could be saying, Joel Osteen, okay? And the, the a person be saying, yeah, mm-hmm, that's, yeah, that's pretty important. And you're, you're thinking, okay, I hear what you're saying, but are you really, are you feeling what I'm feeling? And that's just a, you know, run-of-the-mill example. But some people don't have a, um, they have a personality that doesn't get too phased by anything, but that's not Christian contentment. Some people don't have that personality naturally, but they learn to be what we call stoic. And they, by the the sheer force of their will, train themselves so that no situation or circumstance gets them too high or too low. But stoicism is not Christian contentment. So it's not a personality. Second, Christian contentment is not the same as a good mood. So maybe this year you have been less cranky than last year. Don't necessarily equate your good mood with Christian contentment because it's very possible 
that your good mood has nothing to do with Christianity at all. Third, Christian contentment is not mellowing with age. Thankfully, this happens. It makes the world a more livable place that people mellow as they get older. But that's not Christian contentment either. Why don't a good personality or a good mood or mellowing with age pass the standard of Christian contentment? Because they have nothing to do with Jesus. They have as much to do with Christianity as a genetic makeup and natural chemical reactions and the aging process have to do with Christianity. They don't. So none of these things are that Christian contentment that we are striving for. Remember what Paul says in chapter 4, verse 4, so famously, so memorably. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I will say rejoice. Not simply rejoice always, but rejoice in the Lord always. It must be in the Lord. And for Christ's sake, or we are not talking about Christian contentment. A couple of weeks ago, I had a flat tire out here, and I was kind of, just being honest, a little bit proud of myself for not losing my temper. Um, I hate being late, and, and this flat tire was going to, to make me late. But I didn't lose my temper at all. I didn't even feel any kind of anger. Um, even when that, that one stubborn nut would not come off that, that one bolt, I, was, I stayed pretty calm about it. Um, but questioning myself, you know, was that Christian contentment? Maybe I'm simply more mellow than I would have been if the same thing had happened to me five years ago. That's a possibility. Or perhaps the weather was accommodating that morning. And it was. I was very glad for that. It was all of 60 degrees, and it was good tire-changing weather. But do you see what I mean? The question is, were my thoughts on Christ? Was I trusting the wisdom of Christ and the love of Christ in his arrangement of this event? Was I seeking in that to draw near to him and trust in him? Was I looking in this problem to bring honor to him? Because that would have been truly Christian contentment. So someone says that they are content with their life. Well, that's good. But that's not necessarily Christian contentment. You might have Christian contentment if you are content with your life as it is, and you might not. What if that life was taken away? What if you lose your health? What if your children lose theirs? What if family and friends and possessions are taken away? Will you in that scenario follow the counsel of Job's wife who said to her husband, curse God and die? Or will you turn bitter and just die slow? Will you be sweetly submitted to every arrangement of God's will if he arranges losses for you? Christian contentment. This is important. I want you to get this. Christian contentment is not being happy with your life as it is. Christian contentment is not being happy with your life as it is. Christian contentment 
is being happy in Christ. Whatever your life is, whatever your life is, happy in Christ, joyful in Christ, whatever your life is. That's what Paul meant in in chapter 4, verse 12, when he spoke of facing plenty or hunger, having abundance or need. He He meant the palace or prison. He would be content. And that was the scenario before him in in Roman imprisonment. He meant paradise or the desert wasteland. He meant having family or not having family. He would be content because the one thing that he could never lose was the one thing that he loved above all else, Christ. He would never lose Christ. So in the palace, Christ In the prison, Christ. In paradise, it would be Christ. In the desert wasteland, Christ. With family, Christ. Homesick, Christ. In the best shape of your life, it would be Jesus. On your deathbed, Jesus. That's Christian contentment. You say, I'm perfectly happy with the way things are. That's good. Will you be perfectly happy in Christ when those things are not? We all know. I know we we tend to live in the moment. But we all know that the way things are is not going to stay this way. We don't know when, but it's coming. We will suffer losses. Through many tribulations, Paul instructed the churches, we must enter the kingdom of God. Will we be content in Christ? One of the key questions that we have to ask of our hearts is, do I want Jesus to be glorified? That is key. Do you want Jesus glorified? In 2 Corinthians 12, Paul is talking to the church in Corinth about this particular uh, particular acute weakness that he suffers. We don't know what it was. He called it his thorn in the flesh. And he says that he prayed to the Lord about this. He says, three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. Now, it's interesting, I think, that the Lord didn't explicitly say no. That's not what the text says. That's not how the Lord answered him. Now, no is certainly implied, but that's not his emphasis. I don't think when the Lord refuses you your prayer request for for relief and for help and deliverance, that it's ever just a straight, explicit no. This is the way that God spoke to Paul. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Something about this context that I find to be fascinating. Paul has been talking about these visions that God has given to him. He says, whether it was out of the body or in the body, I don't know. And he's talking about himself in the third person. He says, I know a man who was carried up to the third heaven, to the dwelling place of God. And saw things that it is not lawful for a man to utter. And it's for the reason of these grandiose visions that he has given a particular weakness. 
But what is stunning is not Paul's revelation that he had in the third heaven. That's not what is stunning about this text. What is stunning is what the Lord says to him in answer to his prayer. My power is made perfect in weakness. That's God's economy. Subtraction equals addition. So now what? Paul realized that the thorn in the flesh, which caused him so much acute pain, was actually for Christ's sake. And this is what he said. You know, how how much did Paul want Jesus to be glorified? Enough for him to exclaim, Therefore, I will boast. Listen to these key words that fit into what we've been talking about from Philippians the last few weeks. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content. I should have had you turn to the scripture, because I would love for you to actually see it in front of your face. I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Same thing that he says in Philippians 4, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content in any and every circumstance. He says, I am content with weaknesses. I'm content with insults. I'm content with hardships, persecutions, and calamities. Because all of those things bring glory to Christ. His power is made perfect in weaknesses. So that your strength stalls, but the gospel marches on. God limits you. He limits your ability. He limits your skill. He limits your time. He he limits the capability you have. And sometimes takes away what you have enjoyed. For the sake of Christ. He limits you for Christ's sake. So the question goes back to, do you want Jesus glorified? Do you long in your heart to bring praise to his name? From the beginning, we've, we've spelled out a definition of Christian contentment. Just to have some reference point here. And this is what I've said, and I'm going to add to it today. I had a feeling, as th- these things go, um, you know, I, I find out what I believe as I preach. So the definition was this. Christian contentment is a sweet spirit of heart submission to every arrangement of God's will. Now I want to add to that. I think we need to. For Christ's sake. Christian contentment is a sweet spirit of heart submission to every arrangement of God's will for Christ's sake. Now, this brings up a question, I think. Am I supposed to be happy when, or let's even put it this way, am I supposed to be happy 
with my loved one getting sick and losing their life to the struggle? Am I supposed to be happy when I lose my job? Am I just supposed to grin and bear it when someone that I have invested in, I've poured my life into that person and I see them turn away from Christ and give themselves to the pursuit of the world at the loss of their soul? Am I just supposed to grin and bear that? And to all of the the above, the answer is absolutely not. Definitely not. You can be content in Christ and plead for change. You can be content in Jesus and cry out for the burden to be lifted and ask the question, how long, O Lord? Your heart can be filled with that sweet contentment in Jesus and tears stream down your face. Now, do we know this from the text of Scripture? Absolutely, yes. We could go to any number of places. Let me just mention two quickly. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, Blessed are those who mourn. And the word blessed means happy, not circumstantially happy, but spiritually, in God, happy. Happy are those who mourn. Does that make sense? They don't seem to fit together, do they? But that's the word of God. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Even in Philippians, Okay, Paul says, we've read it a number of times, I have learned, in whatever situation I am, to be content. That didn't mean that Paul constantly had a smile plastered on his face. Just a couple paragraphs earlier, chapter 3, verse 18, he said, I now tell you, even with tears. So the man who has learned to be content in every situation had great sorrow in his heart as he was writing there about the enemies of the cross. I think that there is something there's something wrong with the Christian heart that isn't mourning. We are not to be happy with the way that the world is. We are not to be happy with this bondage to corruption that all of creation suffers. Not to be happy about the ruin of souls? Didn't Jesus weep over rebellious Jerusalem and at the grave of Lazarus? And didn't he go into the garden of Gethsemane and fall on his face and sweat profusely and sob before his father asking that the cup be removed from him? So what about that scenario? Was Jesus content in the Garden of Gethsemane as he faced death and being forsaken by his father? The answer is absolutely yes. And we see it explicitly in his words, in his prayer, when he said, Nevertheless, not what I will, but your will be done. Through agony, he still had that sweet spirit of submission to his father. And not just the will to choose God's will over all the other options, but the heart to genuinely prefer the will of God to all other options and scenarios. So, recap quickly. We've we've been looking at what Christian contentment is not. 
not a good personality, not a good mood, not the natural aging process of, of mellowing out and things like that. We have also seen that it's not just being content with your life as it is. It's being happy in Christ with whatever your life is. But I want to share with you another struggle of mine. I find in my heart two things hindering me from contentment in any and every circumstance. One is a weak trust in Christ's sovereignty, his perfect control, providential arrangement, orchestration of all things. My weak trust in Christ's sovereignty. And second, my weak determination to bring him glory. And I find in my life a pattern. I find that I struggle with this weak trust and weak praise or determination to bring him praise in the small things. Not in the big things, not in the peaks and not in the valleys of life, but in the gradual ebb and flow and mundane things of life, in the ordinary things. We all know that life-changing events are not everyday occurrences. I mean, this is obvious. We really don't live on a roller coaster. You know, you're one moment you're at the peak of circumstance, uh, good circumstance, and then you just absolutely bottom out to the depths. You're, you know, you're not catapulted up emotionally and then just all of a sudden, you know, dropping out emotionally. Life doesn't work that way. Thankfully, it's a lot more gradual and it's a lot more mundane than that. And I think that I want to speak cautiously here. I find that I'm prepared more for the big things because I anticipate them. I often think, and this isn't going to be universal, I don't think, but um, I, I often think in terms of what if. And I anticipate those things and I anticipate Christ in them. So last week, I had, uh, toward the beginning of last week, I had two particularly rough days. And um, on one day, I got two pieces of just of bad news. And in both situations, I just, I felt my heart break and immediately fill with Christ, with the sense of his presence and his drawing near. Sometimes when you're forced to swallow a, a bitter pill, you find sweetness in your soul. Because in pain and in the tears, you rush to Christ. And there is a strong sense. There is, there is purpose written all over that circumstance. It's so plain to you. Now, I'm not saying that's always the case with me. But I, I do find some consistency in my life for those things. But it's in the routine and it's in the mundane where I spend most of my life that I think I struggle. So take Wednesday night. So Tuesday and Wednesday were kind of rough. And Wednesday night after church, I was just, I was uh, thinking about church situations and disappointments and rejections and upcoming struggles. But I didn't, you know, get into a tirade or throw a fit emotionally angry or sad either way. 
I felt Christ close and near, and I was content in Christ. But then being tired, I had a disobedient two-year-old on my hands. And I don't know what, I can't even remember all that he was doing. But I remember being very mad. (laughs) And I yelled at him more than once. I know what the women are thinking, that poor baby. So I I had this disobedient two-year-old on my hands. And uh, then I got angry. Then I wasn't content. Then I wasn't trusting in God's arrangement of all things. And then I wasn't maintaining this, um, this purpose in my heart to bring glory to Christ in all circumstances. That's when I slipped and that's when I fell. You see, it's, it's odd. Our, our, our thinking, the way that we process these things is inconsistent. I can tell you every detail about the sledgehammer blows that break my heart but not my joy. I can tell you all the scenarios and step by step, but I can't remember what Joel was doing. Those were the straws that broke the camel's back, so to speak. And I don't know what those straws were. I think this is where we will struggle. I think this is where we will let down our guard. So what's wrong? My trust in the sovereignty of Christ and my determination to bring Him glory in all things goes AWOL often in those circumstances. I submit to Christ's sovereignty in the momentous, but am I even aware of him in the mundane? Do do I believe that he is sovereign in the small, that he is there present in the plain, that he is over the ordinary? Do I maintain my belief in that? So I'm spent one day and I'm sad one day, but I believe that he has that arranged. I have a cold. Not literally, but I'm just saying. Do I believe that he is in charge there too? I get this news, terrible news, the dreaded kind of news, and I feel the Lord's work immediately in my heart. I can sense the the brushstroke of the artist painting on the canvas of my heart. But what about in the mundane moments? Just because my life is still, does not mean that his brush is still. He is still at work. He is writing a script or written a script for my life. And one movement in the story feels like it's loaded with purpose. And a couple sentences in my story feel absolutely pointless. Is that the kind of script that God writes? Is that the kind of author that we serve? I don't think so. Not the God who says, I work all things together for your good. You're in the hospital. You have a hospital stay of two weeks. You know, I would not be surprised if you had a two-week hospital stay and I visited you and you talked to me and I would not be surprised to hear the peace of God coming through your voice. It wouldn't surprise me at all. But what about a headache? God gives me a hospital state. Okay. What about when God gives a headache? And I believe God gives headaches. I believe God is an absolute charge. Orchestrates all things. Don't get me wrong. Satan has his hand in it too. As Paul called his thorn in the flesh that he asked God 
for relief for, he was also talking about it being a messenger of Satan. So certainly Satan has his hand in those things too, but God is the author, not the devil. God is the one who arranges, not the devil. God is the one who is active. The devil is the one who is reactive. What about when he gives us a headache? And you know, there's, you're tired, you've had some frustration, and you've got this headache, and then you lose it with somebody that you love. And what do you do? I just have a headache, okay? Isn't it strange? Are we so inconsistent? We need to be ever mindful that whether God's presence and working is evident or not, He is present. He is here. He is not still, and He is not silent. God is working in all things. He is working to draw you to Himself when you're climbing the steeps and when you're just plodding along on the flats of life. He is working to draw you. So, Again, I go back to the question, and I question myself, do I long for Christ to be glorified? Let's go back to chapter 1 of Philippians, verse 20. Paul is in this situation where death is possible. He doesn't know whether he will be released or whether he will be executed. So in verse 20, he writes... It is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. Now, don't we read verse 20 and admire that expectation and hope of the Apostle Paul's? that he has this eager expectation and hope to honor Christ in his death, just as important as it is for him to maintain that eager expectation and hope to honor Christ in his body at death, just as important is that desire, that expectation and hope to honor him with his life, not only in the dying body, but in the healthy body as well. Notice those two words, so easy to miss. He says, as always, as always, I want to honor Christ always. Trusting Jesus, living before the face of God in any and every circumstance, in the capital, the heart of the empire, under the threat of Roman sword, living before the face of God, determined to honor Jesus. And not only in the capital, not only in the prison, but everywhere that's in the middle of nowhere that never merits a mention. There too, living before the face of God, determined to bring glory to Jesus. That's the Christian life. So listen, listen to me. If you find in your heart the desire to honor Jesus above all things, then you can be content in all situations. This is key. Do you want to honor Christ? 
So Paul says in chapter 4 again, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Verse 12, in any and every circumstance. Every momentous circumstance, every mundane circumstance. The circumstances that have purpose written all over them and the circumstances that you're going to forget an hour after they're gone. And all things to honor Christ. Now I want to close with this thought. Why? What is the motive to honor Christ? Our natural inclination is not to honor Christ. It's to honor ourselves. Even when we were in the perfect environment, in the Garden of Eden, without sin, completely innocent, Satan was able to breed discontent into the human soul. We did not honor the Lord. We sought His honor for ourselves. And we were not looking for something that we deserved. The creature had the Creator in His sights. So when Jesus died, it was for treason. Not His treason, our treason. He was not dying for the guilt of eating an apple or whatever it was. He was dying for the guilt of treason. Every person that, let me put it this way, the only people that Jesus died for are traitors. Traitors. The prince dies for traitors. We wanted him dead because he had the throne. We wanted his glory. We killed him for it. He died of his own accord, laid his life down in submission to the Father because we wanted his glory. We wanted to supplant him from the throne. That's the guilt. That's the bad news. But listen. We wanted his throne. We tried for his throne. He died because we sought his throne. And then he gave it to us anyway. We sought his glory. And he died for that crime. And shares it with us Anyway, he says to us, come to me. He says to us, know me, follow me, serve me. And he says to us, unbelievably, reign with me. That's the promise of the word of God. All of those who suffer with Christ will be glorified with Christ. We are fellow heirs with Christ. All those who overcome, it says in Revelation, will be seated with him on his throne and reign with Christ. Why would I want to honor him? Because when I did not seek his honor and he died for my treason, he shares his honor, his glory, his inheritance, and his kingdom anyway. For mercy's sake. Because of the abundance of his grace. Why would I want to bring honor to Jesus? 
Because, here's the gospel according to Philippians, because Christ Jesus emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being made in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, so that now... I can suffer the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes through the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness of God that depends on faith. I'll say it again. It's plain from the scriptures. If you find in your heart that you desire to bring glory to Jesus above all things on account of the gospel, then you can be content in all situations. Lord, help us. Paul learned. We're learning. Let's go forward. Let's make progress. Let us find all our joy in the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, if we will learn contentment in Christ, how much will change. It's a, it's a sin-killing contentment that we're after. How many lusts will die? What lust won't die if we are content in Christ in any and every situation? What selfishness, what pride, what anger could live in the face of contentment in Christ? Oh Lord, give this to us. We ask you that you would come to us and in the irresistible power of your spirit, plant the truth, the life-transforming truth of your word in our hearts. Father, if there is someone here who has not yet gained Christ, does not have the righteousness of Christ and the forgiveness of God, if there is someone here that doesn't know Jesus as Lord, as Savior, I pray, Father, that they would hear the gospel message of what Jesus has done in sacrifice for his people and rush, Father, I pray that they would rush to repent of all those charms of the world. Repent of all the sin, all the things that they're holding near and dear to their hearts that they don't want to give up for Christ's sake. I pray that they would turn their back on those things and count them as rubbish to gain Jesus. May every heart that's gathered here with this church today be trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation. In his name I pray, amen.